Hello, dear friends. Welcome to the final episode of the Let's Give a Damn podcast because coronavirus is about to wipe out the human race. Okay, I'm a thousand percent kidding, friends, obviously. And believe me, I'm taking this damn thing seriously, but we do need to take somewhat of a lighthearted approach every once in a while or else we'll all go mad, right? I've been at home for five days so far and I'm most definitely getting stir crazy. And we have weeks and weeks and weeks to go. Today, friends, we have a special guest on the show. I've invited my friend and the co-founder of Distributed Bio and an incredible computational immunoengineer, Jacob Glanville, on the show today to give the Let's Give a Damn family a primer on all things coronavirus, what it is, where it came from, what we're doing wrong, what we're doing right, how we can stay healthy, and what life looks like moving forward. And I know primers are usually short, and this is an hour-plus conversation, but this is an intense and relevant matter. I wanted to give you a one-stop shop experience here, and hopefully we did an okay job at that. Over the last few days, Jake has been on Fox, MSNBC, RT News, and many other outlets talking about this pandemic, so I'm very grateful he gave me and us a little over an hour of his time on a Sunday afternoon while he was at home with his wife and his kid. Thank you, Jake. So let's dive right in and learn together, okay? I'm Nick LaPara. This is the Let's Give a Damn podcast, and here is my conversation with co-founder of Distributed Bio and computational immunoengineer, Jacob Glanville. Let's go. Welcome, Jake Glanville, to the podcast. I'm so excited that you're here because you have a lot to teach us. Hey, well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Just for a little context before we dive into all the craziness that is coronavirus, you and I, just for some context for the the friends listening, you and I have been trying to get a conversation in the books for a couple of years now. And this actually won't be that conversation because you and your team have are doing so much. You're doing so, so very much. And I want that to be a longer, more in-depth conversation But today, we'll get a little context for who you are and what you're doing, but we will spend most of the time on uh, COVID-19, coronavirus, all of that, because people are, uh, they they don't know what's going on, and I don't know what's going on, and we're we're entrusting our, (laughs) we're entrusting uh, so much of moving forward uh, on you today, because there's so much, one of the things that I think is not helping people right now is... There's so much out there, right? There's so many voices. There's the media. There's experts. There's people saying they're experts. And there's all of these, you know, crossed, uh, there's all these, you know, this information that conflicts with one another. And so I'm hoping that you can, uh, you know, help us set some of that straight. So why don't you, Jake, uh, introduce yourself? Who are you? Uh, What do you do? Let's give a little context there. Well, that sounds great. So first off, yeah, it's great to be on. And it's great to finally be talking with you. We have been. Yes trying to do this for a couple of years now, it's kind of ironic that we actually somehow found the time in the middle of a, of a crisis and an outbreak to talk, but I'm glad I'm here. So yes. uh, my name is Jacob Glanville. I'm the founder, CEO, and president of Distributed Bio. We're a computational immunoengineering group. That means we use math and computers and new robotics and high throughput data generation technologies to crack open the immune system and try to understand how it works to produce antibodies and T-cell receptors. And, and the reason we do that is that if we have a better understanding on how the immune system works, then we have this super powerful technology for creating medicine, which is the immune system. And we can peer into that and pull out medicines. So my company works with about 50 different pharmaceutical companies and they come to us and they're like, hey, Jake, we have this cool new drug target. It's a plaque in the brain or a receptor on the heart. 
or something on the surface of COVID-19. And we just, if we had an antibody against that, that target, that would be a great drug. Um, can you make it for us? And so what my team does is we use all these tools to make those antibodies. Uh, and through that process of getting increasingly sophisticated on engineering antibodies, it's also gained us some insights into how the immune system does this. And that's given rise to a broad spectrum vaccine technology that we've been creating for years uh, by ourselves using our laboratory space and the profits from the antibody discovery. With my project lead, Sarah Ives, uh, you know, working 18 hour days, both up here and in Guatemala, where we did animal research, um, we ultimately ended up generating a pretty remarkable data set. We ended up meeting Bill Gates, receiving a Gates Foundation in the Pandemic Threat Award. And that work is now carrying forward at the Peerbright Institute, supported by the Gates Foundation. And it appeared in a recent Netflix um, docu-series called uh, Pandemic, How to Prevent an Outbreak. Um, so that's basically my group in a nutshell. We It seems like we work on a lot of things, but the thing all of the work has in common is that we are hardcore antibody and immune system engineers. And so we figure out ways to engineer these antibodies, these receptors that nature has given us for 462 million years. And we're, we're just finding fast ways to repurpose those as drugs. So thanks for That's having fantastic. me on. Yeah, of course. We're so thrilled to have you here. And and how funny, actually funny is not the right word, how timely that, when did that pandemic, uh, How to Prevent an Outbreak docu-series come out yeah, recently? That was, yeah, that was pretty ridiculous. It came out in January 22nd. So we were filmed for over half of uh, 2019. And they really, they went around, it was like a, you know, a reality TV. They were filming us while we were running studies down in Guatemala twice, up at our laboratories. They filmed us while we were like going through the anxiety of whether or not we won the Gates grant. And then, and then it all stops and you don't get to see the preview of what it's going to be like. So you can just hope that they're portraying you well, or at least honestly, and you know, we're proud of our work, but we had no idea what it was going to be like. And so there was a lot of anticipation on my team in January and uh, we all went and had a, a, a viewing and I was trying to warn everybody. I was like, guys, listen, like there's 10,000 things on Netflix. Nobody's going to watch this. But it happened to coincide with the outbreak of the coronavirus in China. Yep. And so suddenly our docuseries was on the front page of Netflix all over the world. And so we just suddenly got just absolutely bombarded by, by people asking questions about the emerging outbreak. Um, and, <clears throat> and then that, <clears throat> excuse me. I promise I don't have it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, that's totally fine, dude. And then, uh, you know, it just sort of got, it accelerated because as we recognized the the outbreak growing and people were talking to us about it, we also realized that one of our technologies called Tumblr could be used to create medicines extremely quickly against the outbreak. So we are running a COVID-19 antibody discovery program right now. We're coordinating with DARPA and US Amarit, which are two of the, arms of the military that manage rapidly creating uh, medicines against emergency outbreaks. And so this, we've just suddenly been thrust into the middle of this, this maelstrom. And it was kind of amazing timing in some respects, except that if I think about it, there's always some crazy outbreak going on. Like this one's particularly bad, yeah, obviously, right. but there's like, if it wasn't this one, it would have been Zika or it would have been African swine fever or it would have been Ebola or it would have been the other Ebola or it would have been SARS or it would have been uh, avian flu. You know, there's there's always some outbreak happening, and that's that's kind of the point that, that we as humans, I don't know, we feel like we're in modern society, but the future generations are going to look back, and it's going to feel like the dark ages that we just put up with yep. this stuff in our societies every year. Yeah, yeah. So 
a couple ground rules for this conversation as we progress is one, I'm going to play dumb for this entire conversation, mainly because I am dumb when it comes to everything we're going to talk about. Plus, I want to make sure that we are crystal clear. So uh, even if you use, and I want you to, because this is this is your this is your world, if you use like very complex jargon to describe something, and I implore you to do that, uh, I, I might ask you at certain points to like restate that and like dumb down language for us. You got it. And then, and then secondly, if I ask the wrong questions or don't ask questions you wished I would have asked during this conversation, please, like this is not just you responding to me, this is a conversation. So if there's something you wanna spend time talking about that you think is more important than the questions I'm asking, again, please interject. And so what I want to do before we even start, I heard this clip. I'm going to try to play it over the mic. I heard this clip from uh, the World Health Organization uh, Executive Director, Michael Ryan. So there's this video out that's kind of going viral right now. And I love what he said. I want your feedback on what he said. But I also think that, tell me if you think that based on what he said, if if in the United States, if we're too... If, if we're too far past that point, because it sounds like he's talking about a certain time once you know that this thing is coming or it's happening. And I feel like based on what I'm seeing from our, you know, commander in chief and otherwise, it seems like we're past that. So I'll just play this for a, a minute and then let's let's bounce off after that. So here it is. What we've learned in Ebola outbreaks is you need to react quickly. You need to go after the virus. You need to stop the chains of transmission. You need to engage with communities very deeply. Community acceptance is hugely important. You need to be coordinated. You need to be coherent. You need to look at the other sectoral impacts, the schools and security and economic. So it's essentially many of those same lessons. But the lessons I've learned after so many uh, Ebola outbreaks in in my career are be fast, uh, have no regrets. You must be the first mover. The virus will always get you if you don't move quickly. Uh, and you need to be prepared. And I, I say this, one of the great things in emergency response, and anyone who's involved in emergency response will know this, if you need to be right before you move, you will never win. Perfection is the enemy of the good when it comes to emergency management. Speed trumps perfection. And the problem in society we have at the moment is everyone is afraid of making a mistake. Everyone is afraid of the consequence of error. But the greatest error is not to move. The greatest error is to be paralyzed by the fear of failure. And I think that's the single biggest lesson I've learned in Ebola responses in the past. So in 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 that statement, he says things like, you know, speed is king. Um, you know, just taking taking decisive action, not waiting around. And it seems like the United States has, unlike some other countries, uh, again, I'm 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 a I am an, uh, a bystander. I'm I'm looking at things through Twitter and other things. I'm not in these conversations, so I could be speaking out of turn. But it seems like we are a little late to the game. Again, especially since you know. Uh, this administration seems, at least for a couple weeks, was not taking this seriously and was saying it'll be gone before it even comes, you know, and other things like that. And now we are, you know, several thousand cases. And that's only because I, I, I would think that there's probably tens of thousands of cases, but we don't, we haven't tested people like other countries, Singapore and South Korea and China have done. And so I kind of wanted to use that as a launching pad because do you agree with me that we, uh, uh, should have done more and didn't. And so now we're kind of past what 
uh, Michael Ryan was talking about in that clip? Yeah. So first off, I just say I love that clip. I I think that speaks at a deep level to kind of my philosophy on tackling most problems, that it's better to act and yes. be willing to have act quickly and be willing to adjust to failure rather than waiting so long to not act that opportunities pass. Um, with respect to the what you just said, I, I completely agree. So, you know, we we had a lot of time to respond to this thing. The Chinese did us a pretty remarkable fav favor and a favor to the world where they took brutal measures of putting, you know, 57 million people under quarantine yep, and uh, massively running hospitals and isolation um, protocols. And they, they bought the world some time and they really did not. What they did was nothing short of heroic and we owe them great thanks. Mm -hmm. uh, they helped many nations, but the degree of help that those nations ultimately received was a consequence of the decisions that they made politically and just procedurally to respond to the outbreak. Uh, the United States uh, didn't do great. We, we squandered some of what China gave us um, in the first seven or eight weeks of the outbreak. There was this problem where we were conducting almost no testing for the virus. Um, I think there were 414 tests conducted in the first seven weeks. And mm. not only were there almost no tests done, but the rules were only test people who had come back from China. And then maybe it had been adjusted later to a couple other countries. But at least here in California, there was a person, the first known community outbreak, that person was in a hospital and the doctors were asking them for them to be tested for a week. And it was refused because that person had no known contact. But that's crazy because those are the exact people you want to test with the yep. ones that don't have contact with China because that's telling you how bad your outbreak is. So that was a, that was a major problem. Um, and it was partially compounded by um, some decisions of the CDC to try to create a new test kit. So to really understand what was going on at the CDC, we actually need to go back to 2018. So there was a decision by the administration to reduce some of the funding um, to the CDC, and that included eliminating a department that specialized in pandemic surveillance. All right. So pandemic surveillance is one of those things kind of like looking for, you know, asteroids that are going to hit the earth. They seem kind of sure. not important in peacetime. And so, so suddenly you really wish you had those guys around. Yeah. And so unfortunately, um, as part of a general cost-cutting measure, that group was disbanded. And so I, th I think that really did contribute to the CDC, not just having the expertise and enough, enough hands on deck to start making the moves that needed to be made in late December, early January. Uh, and one of the Things that happened, and I don't know the exact details of how this took place, but there was a decision by the CDC to not use the kit that was being used in China and Korea and other places to test for the presence of the virus. The decision was to make a, their own special American CDC kit. Now, what they wanted with that kit was it wouldn't just check for coronavirus, the, the novel COVID-19 uh, causing agent, but it would also check for other viruses like influenza, um, uh, cold viruses and so forth. And I, I get why they did that. Because it would be cool to go in there and get a test that doesn't just say yes, no on Corona, but it actually can classify the person. Like this one is influenza B. This person has Corona. This person has whatever, right? Sure. But the problem was they made the kit. It was pretty complicated. And a general rule is the more complicated you make something, the more moving parts it has to break. And so sure enough, this thing was shipped out to a bunch of sites. And many of the sites started reporting that the kit was um, returning positives on viruses that couldn't be there. So I don't know exactly what was in the kit, but you imagine going in and having him be like, well, we tested your sample. You don't have Corona. You seem to have the flu and also like maybe Ebola, right? That's not a great thing. So, right. so what happened was they decided, you know what, freeze all the kits. Uh, and I think they only had five or six sites in the entire United States that were allowed to run the kit. 
under special circumstances while they were trying to tinker with it. And then, the, you know, having very few sites able to run the kit, having some delays where now you're sending samples, you know, shipping them between states where the sample may deteriorate to go test the kits, and obviously having a backlog meant that we really weren't testing anyone in the United States. So the outbreak had happened. We now know from genetic analysis of the strain variants across the United States that we think the we think that the United States started to become infected with the coronavirus is back in January. But we, no way. We, we yeah, yeah. Six it was they what they did is they looked at a bunch of the the strains and based on the number of mutations they had and what the closest strain they looked like in China, you can kind of trace back. The other way you can trace back is you can look at the number of cases that we have and you can do mm-hmm. case tracing and you also just estimate based on the known doubling rate of the virus how long it's had to be around. And so we think it was mid-January that already there were cases of coronavirus coming into the United States and they've been propagating and doubling silently. If you look at a map right now, the United States, it's like this crazy red red map of every state mm-hmm. infected. Yep. That's not what it looks like if, it were, if the infection happened in late February. That's what it looks like when it happened mid-January. And we just weren't checking. And, and the, the reason that that's important is that if you look at other countries, you can see really different experiences at this outbreak depending on the kinds of measures they chose to take. So the, the really positive examples are South Korea and Japan and China. So China got hit with no warning. So of course it was gonna be rough in the beginning, but they took a series of very strong social measures. They were willing to basically pause their economy in order to get this thing under control. And it looks like they succeeded at that. It might be a little, they're gonna enter a tough period because at a certain point people have to go back to work and then it might start spreading again. But in general, they did a pretty remarkable job of clamping down on this outbreak where they didn't benefit from warning of having someone else be sick first. Uh, the other success stories are Japan and South Korea. Uh, so South Korea implemented a super aggressive a testing strategy. So they tested like 10,000 people a day during that whole period where the United States was testing 414 people over seven weeks. They're doing like 10,000 tests a day. And so they got uh, a lot of people tested early and they got a really good assessment of where the problem was and they were able to tamp down. They were actually able to use testing as a replacement for certain types of containment measures. Because if you test everybody, you don't really need the same level of of quarantine. Although some of those measures were in place. And then the Japanese, uh, you know, in general, these are these are countries that had to deal with SARS, so they had been sort of battle tested for this kind of problem previously. Um, you know, and over in America, I see people kind of complaining about people wearing masks from those countries, but those people yep. experienced SARS. We did it. I, I'm willing yep. to bet that after this whole thing goes through, you're going to start seeing Americans wearing masks more often as they travel as well. But but bottom line, those countries did well. Like on the flip side, you can see uh, responses that were very not well, not well done are. First off, cruise ships. The cruise ships were a catastrophe. Yeah. Um, and they're just basically putting a whole bunch of people in an isolated, confined area. A lot of them are old, so the high-risk population. And they're touching all the same stuff. And then you have staff that are serving everybody food in buffets, and they're all eating buffets as well, down in the undercarriage of the, of the of the ship. And, like, we know cruise ships are bad for outbreaks. This happens with rotavirus and other diseases not too infrequently. But in this case, they just turned into these, like, horrible uh, incubation chambers. And there were weird decisions on whether to let people off the ships that made things worse. So hundreds of people got infected on, on a cruise ship off of Japan. And there's been other cruise ships with major outbreaks. And then the other cases where it's been pretty rough have been uh, Iran made a decision to try to minimize it politically. And that backfired horribly. So they like basically you cannot try to suppress this information. That's the kind of strategies that dictators apply. And that stuff works in peacetime to give you small political benefits. But what you have to realize, and hopefully these dictators recognize, is that uh, 
an outbreak is a natural disaster and you cannot bullshit your way through through a hurricane. It's just going to come at you and you need to be yeah. honest and you need to share information. Otherwise, it's going to wash over you and and not responding appropriately. Whatever small political benefits you'll receive, you're going to suffer much, much worse when the reality of that hurricane reaches you. And so Iran suffered from that. So with the United States, I think, you know, cost cutting measures always bear that risk. So that's this is the consequence. I think you're you're betting that there isn't going to be a disaster. And so I think the administration got unlucky that this took place. I mean, this is a extremely bad outbreak. So sure. Yeah, um, I could see I could see them being tactically being like, this seems expensive. Let's cut it. There's probably nothing that's going to go wrong. In the same way, you could be like, well, there's a bunch of, you know, astronomers hanging out, looking at the stars, waiting for an asteroid. Let's just get rid of them because there's probably no asteroid. And then you could be wrong every once in a while. So uh, you know, I honestly, I, I I do think we should invest more money in, you know, shared collective good infrastructure. And this is an example of one of those cases where obviously 2020 hindsight, but I think we should have maintained that team intact. You know, I also work on infectious disease. So I think that sure. robust funding for the CDC, US AMRID, DARPA, and the other agencies that manage um, infectious diseases, both as bioterror agents, but also just propagating naturally across populations. That, that stuff should be funded well. But you know, I have a I have a vested interest. Yeah, vested in, interest yeah. in those things being well funded. Now I think yeah. when we went into the infection and the outbreak, I think what happened was first off, those voices weren't around um, to aid the the White House and policymaking. And also, I think it was difficult for everyone to try to decide how to what degree what was going on in, in China was going to reach us. So, you know, maybe they could contain things. I think there was such a, there's such an odious consequence to having to apply these measures to your economy that you can see states around the world are struggling to make difficult choices. Um, so like the UK, for instance, is taking a position of like, let's just let everybody get infected because the idea of having to send everyone home from work and the hit they're going to take to their economy just seem, I'm sure that factored in and making it not feel worth it. And as they are in administration, they're in an election year. So they are, of course, going to realize that this is going to be rough for them because they can't go out and do the, um, the large scale stadium, you know, crowds, which the president is good at at, at rallying people around. And, you know, it it could damage the economy. That's one of the major benefits that the current administration, you know, uses irrespective of other issues. They look, the economy is good and generally Americans vote for a good economy. And so I think, the idea of, of crashing the economy and losing crowds and having to respond was probably a difficult choice politically for those reasons. But again, I, uh, some of this was just lack of information and lack of realization, the degree to which this thing broke out, right? Viruses have a, you know, they, they operate according to this, this acceleration, this, this logarithmic, you know, initial slow and then incredibly fast growth. And so it's kind of hard to realize if you're not used to looking at this kind of data that a hundred cases now, is going to be a hundred thousand cases in a couple months. That's a it's a weird thing to look at, and the policy changes and that tipping point are hard to predict. So I think there were some, so I'd say difficult choices made by our government. I wish they would have acted earlier, but I but I'm yeah. also that's true in most. If you look across Europe, there's a pockmarked landscape of the kinds of choices that are being made, and they're resulting mm-hmm. in very different outcomes. So the the. The challenge here is there really is a rule book, but the rule book sucks. When you open it up, it says when this kind of stuff happens, you need to lock everything down. And, you know, that's what our bodies do when we get infected. They start secreting factors that cause your cells to stop producing proteins. They kind of shut down the, the, the economy in order to protect ourselves from viruses. And like that microcosm in our bodies is really what the global government should do. But like nobody wants to act first because if it's not really reaching your country, then you'd rather just like have people not fly in. That doesn't really hurt your economy as much as sending everyone home from work. But unfortunately, yeah. because everyone took that that 
the 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 cheaper choice, we're all suffering for it. The collective goods problem means that now the whole global economy could suffer for the, for the next few months. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So no, all of that's super helpful. Um, before we dive, I want to dive into uh, what you specifically and your team are doing about it. Cause I know you kind of broadly said, here's what we're doing, but I want to understand that a little more. And I want to talk about solutions, but before we get to that, describe coronavirus for us, like describe in, in kind of very infantile uh, childish terms, like COVID-19, what is it? And how does it, how does it start and spread? Like, where does this thing come from? All right. Yeah. So let's talk about coronavirus. So the coronavirus is, the coronaviruses are a very large family of viruses that are so named because if you look at them in a very powerful microscope, they have these little kind of pretty protrusions on them that kind of look like a crown. If you're looking mm -hmm. at a crown from the top and those little protrusions, what they are, if you zoomed into them really close, they have this threefold symmetry, kind of like a, a three-leafed flower. And the the stamen of that flower have something called the receptor binding domain. And that they're what binds to um, the surface of cells in your lungs. And then the flower opens up like a kind of like a grappling hook or like that scary face on the alien from the alien creature. And it tears open the cell membrane and injects the, the genetic information of the virus. So the little crown spikes are sort of the grappling hook it uses to attack the cells. They're uh, a wide family. Um, they include SARS. They include MERS. But they also include about 30% of uh, the common cold that can be caused by rhinoviruses, mm. but can also be caused by coronaviruses that are extremely distant relatives of the current coronavirus. Um, they also... Um, distant relatives infect chickens. So we have vaccines for coronaviruses for chickens. And there are other species that are also infected with coronaviruses. And there's a whole bunch of them that live in bats. So uh, our big last scare with coronavirus, and the reason we're so freaked out by it, is that uh, MERS and SARS were very deadly. And they popped out from other species. So SARS, we think, came from bats. And it started propagating in human populations. And it, it had a pretty high mortality rate, but it spread pretty quickly. And it got people so sick that you could isolate the problem. Same thing with MERS. MERS was very deadly. We think it came from camels and it had the same property. It, it made people so sick that it was hard for there to be a really big outbreak because you'd immediately recognize all the sick people and you could isolate them. Sure. Where this virus, um, so COVID-19 is the disease. SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the virus, uh, this novel coronavirus. It has some unique features that make it sort of a perfect storm of a pandemic virus. So the first thing is that it has a very long incubation period. So many healthy people will get sick after three days of exposure. And the first thing experience is this really high 103 fever. They could have coughing. They could have bone aches, headache, a bunch of other symptoms. But the five fever is pretty, pretty nearly universal. Uh, but not everybody has that. There are some people that could go 14 days without showing symptoms. And the really scary thing is that during that period, they can be infectious. That's pretty unusual for a virus to be infectious for extended period of time with such a long incubation period. And what that basically does is that makes people who get infected turn into these, the kind of like Trojan horse carriers. They're carrying around totally, the virus yeah. across, you know, flying across the world. It's never been easier than it has been before to fly across states into businesses and into people's homes and they can infect them as they go. And then the other weird thing about this virus is that there's that, there's that long delay. And then there's also a lot of people that don't get that sick. So if you're under 20 years old, um, it's 
in almost all cases, relatively mild. And children, I think I don't think I remember any deaths of anyone under 10. There's been a couple under under 20. Um, but the flip side of that is this is a very dangerous virus as you get older. So there is a risk for every category except for the the kids under 10. I think they're, they're pretty much protected. Right. Um, but once you get over 60, your chance of death going, goes up significantly. And by the time you're 80 years old, I think you're talking about 15% of people that are 80 are going to end up dying from this virus. So it's a very serious disease. Wow. About a fifth of people who come down with it um, are going to require hospitalization. And then, you know, uh, around 3% are going to die. And that number can depend. So over in Korea, we see about 0. 0.6, 0.7%. So their number is pretty low because they detect really early. And also they're detecting more cases. So they're realizing there's some people that just don't want to appear sick, but they're, they're probably spreading it. Uh, and then the flip side of that, you have the really bad rates in Italy. So Italy has an older population and they, they just don't have any more room left in their hospitals. So the ICUs are being overrun and people are dying in the waiting rooms without, without receiving help. And so they're, mm -hmm. they have, they have a pretty elevated, so I think it's 8% mortality. And I've even heard numbers that might be higher than that. Um, and that's the general population. So that, that range of, uh, that long incubation period, and then that long range of degrees of symptoms means that this thing is super infectious because you have a whole bunch of people that aren't that sick and have a long period where they can be infecting others without um, being able to be isolated. And that's really why we've kind of given up the idea that this thing could be isolated to, to China or a couple countries. Um, when the World Health Organization finally declared this a pandemic, and that yes. just happened this week. And that kind of sounds like it might just be semantics. Um, some people are confused. They're like, well, it's over 100 countries. Why did they wait so long to call it a pandemic? Right. And again, it comes down to financial reasons that when you call it a pandemic, then countries are more likely to act. It shifts you over from something called containment to mitigation. So in containment, the idea is to kind of like block your borders and kind of keep it in, keep it out of your country. The idea for shifting when it's a pandemic is that it's already in your country. So instead of trying to keep people, the disease from coming in, you shift to mitigation, which is try to shift, slow it from spreading from house to house rather than country to country. And that's, that's these social distancing policies that have proven pretty effective. They've implemented now across lots of states in the United States. The other meaningful thing that happens when, uh, well, there's two financial things that happen when they declared a pandemic. One is they know that they're going to give the global economy a kick. And that's probably why they were a little resistant to call it that. Sure. Um, and, but the second thing is that it potentially opens up $320 billion that are in reserve at the World Bank. Um, after the Ebola outbreak. And they, they, it's been reserved for the, the when a new pandemic comes that that money could be opened up to help countries around the world to be able to stem the outbreak. And so in, in theory, we could actually access that money now. I think there's going to be a discussion about whether this qualifies, but um, that's a helpful thing to have happen. So that's sort of where we are. At this point, it is uh, a full pandemic. It's affecting over 100 countries and you're seeing significant acceleration. So the good news is China and South Korea have and Japan have done a really good job of limiting the spread of the virus. And, and mm -hmm. they've actually exceeded my expectations because I'm doing modeling on this, which is I'm trying to predict using math as a crystal ball to figure out where things are right. going. China did way better than I was expecting. So they managed to slow the virus at around 100,000 cases pretty well. Um, the flip side is this is blowing up in the Middle East with Iran being a, a kind of a nucleus of that, but it's affecting all the neighboring states. It's really blowing up in Europe um, with... Italy being incredibly badly hit. I'm getting these, I mean, I get, I get contacted by people around the world about this and it's kind of hor horrifying sure. what's happening to some of those communities. 
Uh, and, and that's starting to accelerate also in Spain and Germany. And in general, you'll see that these numbers start ticking up quite fast across those countries. And, and the same thing's happening now in the United States. So now that we're actually doing testing, um, up until we had good testing, when we the only way we knew that we had a problem was not number of tests, but it was number of people saturating ICUs. And that's a terrible way to tell that you have an outbreak right. is doctor's exhaustion. But that's what's happening up in Seattle. So they're having a major outbreak up there. Um, the Bay Area is, is a second area that's undergoing a major outbreak. So it's like a ghost town here right now. They basically said nobody, no groups over 100 people should meet. A whole bunch of con- companies have told all their employees to work remotely. So there's like no traffic. There's almost nobody on the streets. They're um, asking everyone to apply these social distancing measures, which is, it's kind of weird because you walk outside and it's kind of weirdly quiet. There's nobody around except every once in a while you see groups of people that are kind of in denial. They're all meeting up at a sports bar or something and which they right. should not be doing. But I think they're just, it just seems so stressful that, that they need some way to vent. Um, which you know, in some ways, you know, I grew up in Guatemala during a civil war and I think in the movies, like war is like constantly shooting, but that's not actually what civil war is like, right? It's you still mm-hmm. get up and you go get eggs from the soup from the store and and you meet people and there's often not people out on the streets that much. And there's there's shooting, but it's punctuated, right? And that's the same thing yep. here. It seems weirdly peaceful. So the the war front is really in the hospitals. It's gonna be in old folks' homes, retirement homes, and hospitals where the uh concentrations of, of elderly are an incredible risk right now. So they, they really, and I've been asking for weeks for this to happen. I think the rules are now in place where they should just have quarantine going around every retirement center. They should um, isolate people from visiting their family members because you get one person sick in one of these old folks homes and suddenly they all get sick and then you have 15% of them dying and, and the rest of them are all going to go to the ICU. So you're going to saturate. Right, the right. And, and yeah. then the other one, that, that's the other place is hospitals. So We've seen it in China, we see it in Korea, we're seeing it in Seattle, and we're going to be seeing it in New York and San Francisco and across the nation that um, the medical centers are going to be overwhelmed. And that means that our our doctors and our nurses, our intensivists, are they're doing something pretty heroic because they're putting themselves on the line uh, and, and they're putting themselves at pretty high risk because you have people coming in, breathing this virus all over them. Um, we should do what we can to try to support them and reach out yes. and give them our appreciation because they're, they're entering a pretty tough period in the coming eight to 12 weeks as we enter the acceleration phase. Yeah. I mean, it's another, like, as you alluded to earlier, this is a new war front. Like it's another type of war zone, right? Um, where they are, they are the front lines. We're not fighting against tanks and missiles and stuff. We're fighting against an, this invisible thing, which is even riskier because you can't see your enemy, right? Yeah. You are, you are just hoping f- like that, you're just hoping that you don't get it and you don't know if that last cough or that last sneeze or that last handshake, you know, could have been the one to transmit it to you. Um, you know, like, like most, uh, like most people in Americans, I've been watching all these videos, right. And all these experts and all these clips and whatever, including yours as well. And I've, I've heard different time periods, right? I've heard some infectious disease experts say this last month. Some have said it could go years. Some, I just listened to this one yesterday where he was saying, he was very like very stern and very solemn about it. But he goes, he goes, I think, he said, I think it'll hit China again. Like once they start letting people go back, you know, they'll do it slowly but surely, but they'll let people, they have to let people go back to work and start taking the subway again. And he goes, it could, it could happen again for them, right? So there's all these different, timeframes and, you know, things that we're hearing. And, you know, we just talked about uh, Italy shut, I mean, virtually shutting down in Spain as of yesterday or or whenever it was, you know, shutting down as a country, everybody stay home unless you have to be out. Right. So how do we, 
how do we break the you know what's being called the the transmission chain? Like, how do we stop this from spreading? Do we do we shut everything down for 340 million people for two weeks? Like, does that stop it? How do we how do we do that? Yeah. So there's basically two ways to slow the transmission chain. So all of these measures, mitigation measures, are assuming you're not actually going to stop it. Um, what you're hoping to do is slow it down enough that right. you have less people going into the hospital at once. So the, the UK, for instance, the leadership there has proposed they just let everybody get infected. And the reason everybody hates this idea who works in my field is that what's going to happen is you're going to get this huge wave of people all at once hitting the hospitals and you're going to overwhelm mm-hmm. them and you're going to have people dying in the waiting rooms. What you want to do is slow that process out so that less people um, are going in at once because the same hospital could serve the same number of people if you had them trickle in over a longer period of time. The other advantage of waiting is that we have medicines on the horizon and I'll talk about those in a little bit. So yeah. if you're not sick yet, you're better off just waiting because these medicines could show up and then this disease could be much more treatable in the near future. And the last reason why I think you should wait and why I don't recommend what the UK is doing is that um, we're still starting to understand what long-term effects this disease may have on the bodies of the recovered. So it takes an unusually long time for people to recover from this disease. It could be like 30 days later, they're still viremic. And we know that many of them have um, sustained lung tissue damage. They call it honeycombing. So it looks like the honeycomb pattern on a, you know, from bees and it's in their lungs. Mm. You can see it in the x-rays. And that's from the immune system uh, hyper attacking the virus and, and chopping up, creating scars in the lungs in the process. And we don't know how long it's going to take for those people to get, regain their full lung capacity. There's also some kind of disturbing things about the, the way the immune system seems abnormal, where there is, we've lost a bunch of these, uh, these T cells that normally help clear out viral cells. And we don't know if they're just off in the lungs or they're just, they've all been killed, but it'd be inter- we just need to look at patients to know how quickly do they recover. And I'd want to know those things before I'd submit myself to be voluntarily infected to make sure that I don't have some sort of long-term problem after receiving this virus. Um, these are just things that are, we don't know yet. So to get back to the timeline for the United States, the strategy is mitigation and to try to reduce the transmission network. The way that's being done right now is there could be some quarantines. At this point, it's not quarantines. It's basically asking people, if you don't, if you can work from home, work from home, right? So there's a bunch of people that are suddenly touching right. each other way less. Shut yep. down conferences, shut down um, you know, parties, shut down big events where you have over 100 people or 100 pe- 150 people gathering. And the idea there is we know that some people are super spreaders, like what happened in the, the fish market in Wuhan there's probably some one guy who rolled in there in the fish market and he was just coughing all over the wet fish. And so the wet fish suddenly was just decorated with nice shiny virus and a bunch of people were touching it and 42 people got infected. Mm. Um, so we want to avoid big groups where one person could cause a big outbreak of a number of other people infected. Um, in terms of the economy, you know, parts of our economy can handle this. We have a lot of data driven um, uh, work. You know, we have people who work in high tech. We have people who are, you know, they work on the phone all day or they use email or video chat. And so that part of the economy could actually operate reasonably well. I think it's mostly just the, the culture and the habits of people working as hard if they're at home. Um, there's parts of our, our work that doesn't work well at home. So I think the, right. you know, I have friends that are in the hospitality industry and they're freaking out. Like I have, a, I have a, one of my best friends, Sarah Hewitt, up in, uh, up in Canada. She was like, She's like, you know, I've been at my bar for eight hours today. I made $8. She's like, I'm going to starve because no one's going Holy in and shit. using those businesses. And I think that's a big yeah. problem that many people are going to face. Um, in terms of time, it's going to be the next two to three months are going to be pretty rough because even when we apply all these measures, there's still, we're at the acceleration phase where there's suddenly going to be a lot of cases. And 
we're still handing out those kits to really understand how bad the problem is. Once, once we have enough people being tested, um, we kind of know where the hotspots are and where they aren't. And once we start being able to apply measures, then the, the cases could taper off. But to your point about China, that is definitely the concern. You could get, you could flatline this thing, but because it's so infectious, as soon as you let people going back into work and they work in their, you know, their factories and stuff, which is have more than a hundred people in them, then yep. the outbreak continues. So part of this whole global strategy right now is that, that we're kind of trying to slow things down because we're hoping that we will know more soon and we'll have better tools soon. So there are medicines on the horizon. Um, right now, there are kind of three classes of medicines. There's small molecule pill medicines, there's vaccines, and then there's monoclonal antibodies. So the small molecule pill medicines, the three most famous ones are some antivirals, one called remdesivir from Gilead that was a failed drug against Ebola, but they're trying it now to see if it um, can work on coronavirus. And we'll get those results in April. There's a study doing going on in China and there's studies in the United States. Uh, second uh, drug is called Kyletra, and it is a, I believe AbbVie creates, creates it. It's a cocktail of two medicines that are antivirals for HIV. And it's being tried to see if the way that they block HIV may also block this other virus. And then the third drug is, it's actually not an antiviral. It's an anti-malarial. It's been off patent for something like 70 years and it's super cheap and it's all over the world. It's called chloroquine. And that, that one's kind of my favorite if it works because it's super cheap and it's available everywhere that that's something that could be deployed. So I know that the, Chinese have completed a hundred person study and they've indicated that it may work better than, than, than no treatment. Although they haven't released data. There's a 10,000 person study ongoing in the UK. And then chloroquine is currently being offered along with some other medicines and the Chinese and the, the Korean um, protocols. But that doesn't necessarily mean it helps that much. What's going on with those protocols is they're a little bit acts of desperation where you just give them whatever you can that you think might help. They're also giving them high dose vitamin C in China, you know, so Right now, it's fair to say we do not have a medicine, but in April, any one of those three drugs will have data that can support that one of them could be effective, and that could be game-changing for the entire outbreak, because I'd be much less worried about getting this if I knew I could go in and they could give me an antiviral to make it mild. Then I'd just get it and get better right. and go back to my life. Yep. Um, so that's the first step. The The next stage that you can hear a lot of people talking about are these vaccines. And of course, it sounds exciting to have a vaccine for the coronavirus, and I work on vaccines, right? Um, Sarah Ives and I and, and the rest of my team, we uh, develop broadly neutralizing vaccines for influenza. So it might surprise you to hear that I don't think vaccines are our best first, first line of defense here. I think we definitely do want a vaccine for coronavirus. And the reason I think we want it is that it's, it's becoming so pandemic that many of us think that this will begin to become seasonal. So we, we're not just trying to solve this outbreak. We're actually kind of, this is the uh. new flu we just have to live with. And so you want a vaccine for that. But the problem with the vaccine is it takes a long time to build. So, or at least it takes a long time to test. There's a company called Moderna that managed to make a vaccine in 41 days, or at least they produce the material to test a vaccine. The NIH is working on one. There's one coming out of Israel. There's one in China. Like many different groups have come up with vaccine strategies here, which is great. That's admirable. Um, the problem with vaccines here is that, well, there's really a couple problems. Uh, the first is that, uh, the people who need the vaccine most, which are the elderly and the immunocompromised, those are the people where vaccines don't work that well in, okay? Right? Because what a vaccine is, is you're giving little broken pieces of the virus to the body and you're relying on the body's immune system to create antibodies against that virus to protect it. But if that person's old and has a messed up old, anti old, old immune system or they're immunocompromised and there's something wrong with their immune system, then the vaccine isn't gonna work that well. 
Um, so that's a problem. The second problem is that a vaccine takes time for the body to produce its antibodies. So typically you get a shot and you probably need a booster shot three or four weeks later. If you're lucky, only one, otherwise a second one. So you're talking six to nine weeks um, after you start receiving the vaccine that you'd have enough protective antibodies in your, in your body for it to do any good. Um, so that's not great. If you are patient, you cannot receive a vaccine to protect you because by the time the vaccine would um, do you any good, you're either going to be cured or dead. So it's a, it's a, it's a treatment for people who aren't sick yet and are not likely to become sick in the next six to nine weeks, which is unfortunately not a lot of people right now. You're, everyone's in a high risk profile. Um, the other problem is that, so because you have to wait a while for it to take effect, it's harder to run these studies. You can't go into a hospital like with an antiviral and give it to like 600 people who are sick and see 10 days later who survived and who died. Uh, and not to be callous, but that's how these things are done. Um, with a, vac with a vaccine, you have to go to a bunch of healthy people and give it to them and boost them for, you know, six or nine weeks. And then you have to monitor a huge number of people to figure out if there's a difference in rate of people who receive the vaccine versus not on who gets infected. So that's a much longer study that thing could take could take four months uh, instead of 10 days. So and then the last the last thing is that there's a little bit of concern on this thing has been rushed forward so quickly. We have not right. carefully validated when we put it into people, is it going to be safe? And is it going to make things better? So we do know that the receptor binding domain, at least in mice, if you inject it, it, it causes some damage to heart tissue. So that's that's the, the little domain on the outside of the virus. That's the part you chop out and you make into a vaccine. That thing can go and stick onto heart tissue and other tissues, and it might cause some tissue damage. So we don't know if that'll happen in humans. And then even if it's safe, the, the next problem is we've made coronavirus vaccines for chickens, and they worked well. We've tried to make them for cats a couple years ago, and they, they backfired catastrophically where the, the cats that received the vaccine actually did much worse after infection than the cats who didn't have it. And hmm. That's something called antibody-dependent enhancement. And it says that if you make the wrong antibodies, it's, it's like worse than not making any antibodies at all. It'll actually make the, the virus be able to infect other tissues, other tissues in the body. So we need to make sure that these vaccines, we better make damn sure that the people we give them to are not actually becoming more susceptible. And that's something that just worries me about the fact that we rushed this so fast. I'm not sure if we're running all right. the tests that we normally run. So that's the vaccine story. Uh, and then also just because of the time we're estimating, that's going to be like 18 months before those things are ready. They might be able to split, wow. spill, speed it up a little bit, but realistically, yeah, you're talking like the end of 2021. So it's not in time to help us on this outbreak. That's something that long-term no. is going to be useful. Like once this thing becomes global pandemic and never goes away, then you might consider that. Um, and, and the other problem there is that, you know, by then this thing might be mutating. We might be in a flu style situation because it's also a single RNA strand virus that can mutate. So we may run into the problem of having to reformulate every year. So that takes us to the third type of medicine, which is the, the antibody monoclonals. And that's the kind of medicine that I'm working on. So the antibody monoclonals are sort of the middle ground. They're not as fast as the, the three small molecules, the antivirals and the antimalarial. If those things work, that's great. That's super fast. Um, they're definitely much faster than the vaccines and they are complementary to the vaccines because they solve certain types of problems the vaccines don't. So they're more expensive. That's the, the downside to them. But what's nice about an antibody, giving an antibody as in, instead of a vaccine to a patient um, has the following benefits. So if I have someone there and I want to protect them, if I give them a flu shot, or sorry, a coronavirus shot, I'd have to wait, you know, three weeks, give them another booster shot and wait another three weeks, maybe one more booster shot. So you're talking like nine weeks out, they'd be protected, right? 
And then each person is going to respond differently. Maybe an old person is not going to respond that well, and they're not going to produce good antibodies. And then another person might produce those anti, uh, you know, antibody dependent enhancement antibodies. Where instead, if for those three people, I gave them an antibody, I'm kind of skipping the middleman. I'm not relying on their immune system anymore. So I give them that injection. Within 20 minutes, they're protected. And all three of them are protected wow. equally because they have the exact same antibody because you can pick a really good one. And so that suddenly is like an antiviral. That's something you can give to someone in a hospital bed. And you know, within five or 10 days, are they cured or dead? So it puts you back in that super rapid uh, deployment. It has an advantage over antivirals that, you know, with antivirals, you have to take the pill every four or eight hours, or you have to have an infusion like an IV. Whereas with an antibody, you get one shot and it gives you like eight weeks of protection. So you could basically go in and give a shot to all of your hospital staff and they'd be protected for eight weeks while they're working on, um, you know, on patients, you could give it to patients and it could help them get cured. And you could give it to military personnel if you're concerned about your military becoming sick and so forth. So that's some of the advantages there. Uh, in terms of speed, it's faster to be able to run the studies. So you don't have to go do what I told you with the vaccines where it takes forever to run those studies. You just go grab a bunch of people that are sick. You give them the the antibody and you check 10 days later, did they, did they survive or not? And if you see more people surviving when they receive your antibody, you know, it's working. So th those studies can happen pretty fast and you can, because you can test on patients, you can do something called a phase one slash two, which is basically rather than normally you test on like 20 people and you give the drug just to make sure they stay healthy. But in right. cases like this, you could just spend more money and the military would be willing to do that. And you give it to 600 patients right away. That's your first test, your phase one slash two. And th this is a thing that's done pretty commonly in oncology. Um, and so you learn that it's safe, but at the same time, you also learn whether or not it worked. Did it help them? And if you know that that's the case, then by the time you go to the next phase trial, you're already ready to do something called compassionate use, which just means you could release hundreds of thousands of doses all over the world to people who need them, even though you're still evaluating the, the drug prior to approval. And the reason that's important is that our goal here is not to actually go spend years preparing for an approval of a drug that we can make billions on. Our goal is to try to save everybody's lives. And so doing that faster is valuable. Um, the way you make antibodies is a little different than the small molecules. You're hoping that they're already finished. The vaccines they've engineered and have to spend a lot of time testing. With the antibodies, uh, you can start from scratch. So there are companies that are taking the coronavirus, they're chopping it up, and they're like injecting mice and trying to fish out the mouse antibodies. That stuff, that's a good idea, but it takes some time because you have to go find a bunch of the mouse antibodies and then characterize them all and figure out which ones are the good neutralizers. So... What my company is doing to try to save time is that we instead looked back to a set of five antibodies from the SARS outbreak in 2002, so almost 18 years ago. And we found these five pretty famous antibodies that people had done years of research on after the SARS outbreak. And they characterized them. They established that they were neutralizing the virus. We have something called crystal structures, which is like a high-resolution three-dimensional image of how the antibody binds to and neutralizes the SARS virus. We have all this great engineering information. The problem was that it, they, that all that information came out two years after the outbreak of SARS. So it was too late to do any damn good. But aha. So the cool thing where we've got is that because the old SARS is a cousin of the new coronavirus, um, I looked at those, those antibodies and I looked at those three-dimensional uh, images and I realized that those antibodies are binding locations on the old SARS that are pretty similar to locations on the, what that location looks like on its cousin, the new COVID-19 coronavirus. So we're using a computationally optimized engineering technology in my laboratory called Tumblr. And we're taking those original five antibodies and we're making like a billion mutant forms of each one. So we have like 5 billion antibodies 
And we're testing all of them to find which ones are now mutated enough to cross and also neutralize the current coronavirus. And that, that process is super fast because we're really only dealing with five antibodies. We have a way of searching billions of different variants all at once to figure out which ones are the really good ones. And we're basically saying, okay, the new coronavirus evolved for 18 years um, away from SARS. We're going to use this special technology in our lab to cause the antibodies to evolve super fast to catch up. And we're going to have the result for that on uh, April 6th. So just a couple weeks out. Oh, not, not too far in the future. Yeah. So we'll know that we've created a cross version. It hits the new coronavirus and it potentially also goes and neutralizes SARS. So if SARS ever comes back, we have a single drug that could work on both and potentially stuff in between. Um, there's still work to do. So once we have those molecules, we're partnering with uh, DARPA and US AMRID, um, which are these arms of the government to help move those things forward. And we're partnering with a company called SwiftScale that has an ability to take that antibody and scale it up into like these big 300 liter vats of, uh, of culture, kind of like growing, making beer, except you're mm -hmm. just making big batches of the antibody. Um, and then what we'd be doing there is we'd be doing neutralization virus testing. So the US AMRID has the ability in these like biosafety facilities to go take our antibody and be like, does it block SARS from infecting cells? Does it block COVID-19 from infecting cells? Does it block MERS? Um, and then once we have that ready, we test it on a mouse quickly, and then we'd be ready to put it into humans. So there's some paperwork and red tape that we're working on, but if things run smoothly, we should be able to do our first in-human test uh, by the summer. And so it would be that phase one slash two I was talking about. And if that looks good, then you're talking about having a phase two slash three with a compassionate use protocol that could be happening by September. So that's by my, as far as I understand it, the fastest path towards a working therapeutic in the biologic space of any of the programs that are active. That's, that's early enough that it could still affect this current outbreak. So that, that's what we're working on. Are there are there other groups doing the same thing you're doing, or are you are or is is distributed bio you know a, a main group that is coming up with this third solution that you mentioned with the antibodies? So there's other groups that are working on antibodies. They're approaching it in different ways. There's a group called Regeneron. They have a they have a mouse that they've genetically engineered so that it produces human antibodies, which is pretty cool. It's a it's a, a good way to make antibodies as drugs. So what they're doing is they're injecting their mice with pieces of the coronavirus, and then the, the mouse responds to it, kind of like a little mini vaccine. And then they go and pull out the B cells from those mice, and they search through large numbers of those B cells to figure out which ones are able to neutralize the coronavirus. Um, there's a, another group called Ab, uh, Abcellera up in Seattle, I believe, that they have this kind of nifty technology where they can take the blood of survivors of coronavirus, and they're searching through it to try to find B cells that the people made against the, the virus. Um, and, and so both groups are sort of searching through thousands or tens of thousands of individual B cells to try to find ones that are um, binding the virus, and then they would spend time characterizing them, see if they neutralize. So those are both. Um, and then there's also there's also a, a Dutch group that I think have just released that they have an antibody that they think neutralizes. So there, there are multiple groups trying to attack the problem. I think our area of unique benefit is that we're working, we're not trying to find new antibodies, we're adapting these existing extremely yeah. well-studied antibodies from 2002. So we're basically piggybacking on two years of research that we don't have to do anymore, which just means we can get it into people faster and have more information. The other thing with our technique is that it's an optimization technique. So what, what we do is at the same time we're crossing, it's called crossing, we're getting our antibody to now go bind the new coronavirus. At the same time, we're heating up that library of billion of billions of antibodies, and we're getting rid of the ones that aren't very thermostable or they don't express well. So we're, we're optimizing a, an antibody. Not only does it cross, and we can make it super potent towards its target, 
but it also is like very heat resistant. So it's like very thermostable and expresses really well. And these are all important features for making a good drug because an antibody is not good enough that it binds its target. You also want it to be um, resistant to crashing out of solution. Like, you, you know, you don't want it to remain stable in a syringe. You want to be able to inject less, as little of it as possible. And the, the more potent the antibody is, the less of it you need to inject. Um, and there's some other engineering features that we can optimize for. And the reason this is important is that if you look back to the old, uh, the old Ebola outbreak, there was this original drug that had, it was called a uh, ZMAP. It was cool. It had these three antibodies that all bound to Ebola. It was one of the first treatments, but it was really tough to work with. They'd have to go bring these like sloshy bags of dilute antibody and they'd have to keep it on cold, but not too cold. Cause it was like really brittle. Anytime you, if you had froze it, it would crash out a solution and turn into gunk at the bottom of a, the IV bag. And they'd have to, you know, that stuff's hard to ship around the world when you need lots of doses. And so the problem there was that the antibody was, was aggregation prone and not very thermostable and kind of tough to work with. So here we're, we're kind of, it's called developability. We have that developability engineering in mind so that we can make not just a medicine that could go treat this thing, but one that was practical to use. What you want to do is something called sub Q which is where you have like a syringe, you can go just jab someone in the butt and, or there's a couple spots you can inject them, but you get the idea. And they have, the, right. you know, what you don't want to do is have to set up banks and banks and banks of people receiving IVs in an area where there's an after, out, active outbreak. So that, that's part of the goal here is to engineer, not just a solution, but a practical solution. The last 15 minutes have been so incredible because I understood a small portion, but my, my, you know, my gratitude for, uh, what you scientists and engineers do, you know, is, has risen. I mean, it was already, it was already a huge, you know, amount of recognition and respect that I have for you all, but just the work that you all do day in and day out is, uh, not just impressive, but it's also, I mean, it's potentially world changing. And I'm so grateful that you, that you all are working on this. I really am. That's all I have to say. But basically what I'm going to do is when this thing gets recorded and we send it out on Tuesday to all the Let's Give a Damn listeners, I'm going to re-listen to it a couple times so that I can get a better picture. But for now, all I'll say is you scientists are fucking amazing. So thank you for doing all that you do. Well, thank you. I have I have a remarkable team. I think that's one of the things yeah. that we've benefited from is that we have like for vaccine work, we have Sarah Ives driving that. For the COVID-19 program, we have uh, Shara Dareka and we have Jack Wang, um, my CSO, Salsan Yosef, my computational director, JP, and a number of others that have all coordinated here to help drive these programs forward. And I think I'm just, you know, when we came into this, you know, I've had to stand up in front of my whole team and talk about changes and policies we're going to have to make to, you know, to, to deal with the COVID crisis. And I offered, you know, people could work from home and stuff. And People were like, no, like we have a chance right now with our own technologies to step up when the world needs us. Why would we ever back down yeah. from that? And so they're like, they're jazz. They're they're working on weekends and we're working together because suddenly these technologies we built over eight years that are all coming to a head where we realize we could actually affect the the thing which is affecting the world's attention right now and could could be safe for our children and our parents. And and we actually have in our hands a way to to affect that. And so so why would you back down when you have a moment like that? And yeah, I just deeply amazing. appreciate it. Appreciate what they've been doing. 
Yeah, I mean, a good a good leader recognizes the team, you know, behind him and alongside him, and you know, in in some cases, in front of him, uh, leading in these ways. So, you know, props to you and props to the team. Yeah, de- when we do when we do the longer conversation, kind of a deeper dive, because I definitely want to do another one with you and Sarah and anyone else you want to jump in. But I know you, we've talked about you and Sarah doing a uh, podcast with me. Let's let's spend the last little bit. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time. You you know, you just mentioned that you guys are working like incredibly long days, and <laughs> you know, you've I I, I hear ba- baby Seraphine in the background and you and your wife and the baby are amazing for you know giving me this time on this afternoon so uh let's spend a few minutes right now wrapping up talking about um so we've talked about what this is and what you're doing and what this could look like for the next you know months and years potentially so let's talk behavior change and solution solutions for the everyday people i was listening earlier to uh this clip with graham medley who's a professor of infectious disease modeling and he said he said, most people have a fear of acquiring the virus. He said, a good way of thinking about it is imagining you already have the virus. So change your behavior so you're not transmitting. Don't think about changing behaviors so you don't get it. Change your behaviors so you don't give it to somebody else. And I really liked uh, the way that he framed it. So jumping off of that, what do you recommend to everyday people that, you know, we've talked about some people that are lucky and fortunate enough to not have to go into work, right? They can, they can, they can video in, they can slack in, they can do whatever, but then there's all these other people, you know, that still have to go to in hospitality industry, uh, teachers, different, you know, we know that our kids are off school until spring break is out, but I told my wife already, they're going to, you know, in the next week before spring break is out, they're going to tell us it's, it's out till, you know, April or May. And so there's all these, there's just a lot of uncertainty right now. And I live in a city uh, that is, you know, we just got pummeled by a tornado, uh, not, you know, 10, 12 days ago, an F4 tornado, and now the coronavirus. And there's these video clips going around about people just kind of like out there on Broadway, which is where all the tourists go. You know, last night they were partying it up and people in close proximity. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, and so we've got a lot of people that just don't know what's going on. Some people aren't taking it seriously. Some people are taking it very seriously. So in light of all that, what do you recommend? Just some general things that you recommend to people um, as we move forward in this new, like, uncharted territory. Yeah. So first off, you know, take some pictures because this is really a once in a lifetime style event if we're lucky and you want to go remember how weird this moment was. Um, I went out and walked around and did that. <laughs> so that more practically, you know, wash your hands. That's one of the most useful things you could do getting into practice of just getting in your home and washing your hands immediately. I even take off a coat. Um, you know, the Japanese have a pretty low per, uh, rate of growth of the virus, and it could be through a series of cultural practices they have. But they don't shake hands, right? So they bow instead often. And I, it, in many Japanese households, people go and shower when they come home from work. So I think there's a couple of different steps that can help reduce transmission that we could adopt in our daily lives. Um, one big thing is it may be, I hear many people talking about how they want to go be with loved ones for this, but do not go and hang out with your older family members. Mm, Call them. Yeah. Do not visit grandma. You know, we have FaceTime. We have these cool technologies. When you go visit grandma, you're putting her at risk. Uh, you might not know you're sick and she, she could die from it, but also she may be around other, other elderly folks. Her, her network of friends could also be susceptible. And some of those folks may not remember as well as us to like not go touch each other. So that, that's a, that's a community guidance. Um, strategy in terms of our homes you got to get out of the habit ask yourself for your all of your actions like how many other people touch the thing that you're about to touch and our you know our world's pretty connected i have like ubers and uber eats and there's all these distributed services which 
are super convenient, except that now you have a lot more people touching your common surfaces. And so try to try to find a way to minimize that in your life. So I've been, you know, we've been planning to cook at home rather than going and eating in restaurants. Um, restaurants are taking a series of effective measures, but in, you know, you just want to make sure that you don't have suddenly 20 people touching your food um, in the same right. way that you were before. Uh, washing hands, trying to cough into your sleeve. If you feel sick, do not go into work. Definitely. This is the moment where you should be able to take care of yourself and not just be like, it's just a cold. If you have a fever, play it on the side of caution, go in. And if you, if you're sick, if you've been in contact with someone who has COVID-19 or you have a high fever, you should be comfortable going and pushing for a test. They're still going to be a little cautious about receiving it. And part of it's that we don't have enough tests for everyone, but they're being better about it. And, and you should try to go get tested because if you know you're positive, it's important for you to go let other people around you know, and that, that can help limit the spread of the virus. They're not doing this national thing called contact tracing right now, but we can do that as humans. We can, if I know I have a COVID, I'll, I'd go tell the people around me that have been in touch with me and that can help limit the spread of this thing. And, yep. and the last thing I'd say is like, don't panic. Um, being stressed out is not good for your immune system. You know, get some sleep, eat normal food, Try to find something to laugh about. Catch up on some books. We've, we've never been set up better than we have before to survive something like this by yeah. having the digital age where we can go communicate to each other virtually. We're having this interview, you know, across state lines. Yep. Um, we've also never had better technology than we've had before. So help is coming. New medicines are on the way. Um, and th those will come and help us out. So there's no need to panic. Even the most dangerous category. So the old, older people over 80 with pre-existing conditions, it's still not, it's not a death sentence for them. Still the, the majority of them will recover and come home. Uh, and then the light side of it is if you feel like you're getting sick, don't panic. Uh, for most people, you know, it's a, it's, you'll feel miserable for a couple weeks. You know, you'll have a high fever, headaches, bone chills, maybe some coughing. There's a bunch of symptoms and they all suck, but you'll get through it. And once you're on the other side, yeah. You don't have to worry about it anymore. And now you can be more help to those around you who haven't been sick yet. So just think of the bright side and we'll climb, you know, one by one, we'll go through the hazing ritual coronavirus and we'll, we'll emerge yeah. on the other side. So that was a question I actually had was once you get it, you can't get it again. Well, that's the way it's supposed to work. There's been some, okay. most people should develop functioning immunity after having COVID-19. There are some weird things about this virus that really bother immunologists. And I'm going to, be a little cautious of what I say here because it's it's sure. new territory. I basically have been calling up my like wise wizard posse of immunologists from Stanford and Harvard and UCSF and other locations. And we've been trying to review some of the new data that's coming out. And partially it's kind of hard to review the new data because people are posting all these pre-peer-reviewed uh, pre studies onto something called BioArchive. The, the idea is that they basically wanted everyone to see their data as quickly as possible. But what they're doing is they're sort of skipping the normal peer review process in science, where normally you produce a paper, you send it to other scientists who don't know you, they go and review it and chew it up, and they basically tell you a bunch of things you did wrong. You go back and fix it, and once you survive, like different people all deciding this is worthy of science, then it gets published. What people have been doing with BioArchive is they've just been like, hi guys, come take a look at my paper before it's been published. And that means you're looking at data that hasn't been like kind of checked sure. through the process. And we've been looking at that data as well. I think it's useful in some cases because it like gives us earlier insights into what's going on, but there's a greater risk of some sort of weird error of assumptions going on. So that was a long way of me saying that it does look like if you get this, in some cases, people seem like they have a really hard time clearing it. So they, they remain with a fever or they remain viremic. Usually if you have a fever, it means you're still viremic, which means you're shedding virus, which means you're not cleared. 
for it could be up to a month or longer. There have been some cases where mm. people look like they got reinfected. Most of my immunology friends, including myself, and um, believe that what probably happened there is actually that those people never actually were fully cured. They they just had suppressed the virus to a certain point, but it hadn't fully cleared from their system. And and that, that's weird. We also noticed that the people who have had uh, the novel coronavirus, they tend to have this big drop in their T cells, which are the class of immune cells that go and attack infected tissue. And collectively, we think that it, it, it may be kind of tough to clear this thing out um, for some individuals. Now, I, it should be the case that once you clear it, you have good immunity and you're not going to get sick again. And, and I think in, we will learn more as we go with all the folks that have been infected and got better since. We are seeing these into some case studies that suggest that it's either kind of doing a number on your immune system and it's taking a cover while to recover, um, or it's just really, really difficult to get out of your body. And so you may kind of continue to be infectious for, for over a month. Um, but that's an evolving story. We're still trying to watch that. It, it is concerning enough that that's why I really recommend um, don't get sick if you don't have to. Don't do what the UK is recommending. Don't, don't think, oh, I have a wedding to go to in June, so I'll just let myself get sick on purpose because we yeah, don't know wild. enough about the long-term consequences of the disease. What I, what I would say is if you can avoid it, don't get sick. If you get sick, you're, you know, you're there, you're stuck. So don't panic. And just, um, in most other diseases with an RNA virus, once you're sick and you get through it, you'll develop immunity and you'll be protected. So we think that that's probably where this is going, but we're just kind of monitoring it as we go because it's a new virus and it might have some spooky new biology. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Two, two final questions. You've been so gracious. One is, there's a lot of fucking hysteria out there right now. There's a lot of social media, a lot of videos, a lot of viral posts and things. Um, and th again, this is all new territory for us. In your opinion, who should we be listening to? You know, in, in the media, scientists, doctors, uh, WHO, uh, CDC, like who should we cut out? Or you could answer it one of two ways. Who should we be listening to or who should we not be listening to? Uh, so that we can kind of like kind of narrow the scope and like listen to a few voices yeah. versus letting everybody in to tell us what's going on and how we should react and what we should, should be doing. So I'm going to say this and I've believed it my whole life. You should listen to experts. You know, we should yep. do data driven decisions. So Fauci, uh, he's the highest ranking person in the federal government in the United States. Who's, and he's, he's an expert. He's an immunologist. He's a professional. This is not his first rodeo. He knows what he's talking about. Um, there's going to be people at the state level. So in addition to the CDC and the federal government, there's going to be a bunch of actions that are happening at the state level. And so you should, listen to what's coming out of the governor office and a set of decisions that are being made there. Cause that's going to affect your local community. Um, you should go and compare, you know, we, we should be informed citizenry and we should ask, is my state or my city carrying out the actions that seem consistent? What is, what is being recommended at the federal or even international level? And if it's not contact your, your representatives and say, Hey, why are you doing this different? Are you sure this is the right choice? Um, on the news media, I am seeing a mixture of good information and bad. I, again, try to tune in when they're talking to experts. I would say politicians and pollsters and, you know, I don't know, some of these like kind of entertain news entertainment um, spin mm -hmm. camps. I, I think that stuff's not helpful. Um, I think also people that are too interested in economics are going to be inclined to see things from a very biased viewpoint because they're going to wish hope against hope that this isn't going to do what, what it will do, which is cause a recession. So I think if you, you want to know how to protect your money, but I think you don't take those people's advice on how to protect your life. I think you, you need to go to the, the medical professionals for that. Yeah. Uh, for, you know, for example, I don't really care what, um, you know, television journalist Ali Velshi thinks 
about this because he is a television journalist. But uh, and he you know he does a lot of stuff with the economy. But when he has you on like he did the other day, that's you know that's the clip we should be watching, right? Because he is submitting to you and I forget the other guy's name that was on there, but he is submitting to the actual experts. Uh, which is when he's doing his job well is bringing those people in and letting you all speak to the subject matter when because he's not the you know in other words drop the pundits listen to experts um, and yeah I'll I'll put I'll uh, link to some of these things as well um, yeah and I appreciate okay, that, let, that that clip as well because he had that the virologist on and I thought he had some very useful and accurate things to say so that's that's really the bottom line is like. Talk to the experts. The experts are also, they're all, we're all keyed in with each other. So they're going to be, you're going to hear a more consistent message when you talk to experts, particularly if that's yeah. their role, because we're all syncing up common information. There are some good, like if you want to know how many people are infected all over the world right now, there are some good websites for that. And so there's, there's good sharing of information. I would say like the worst place to go is I, I, I repost my stuff on social media, but I definitely don't go like read people's random posts that aren't referencing like a you know, an official channel on social media, because there's a lot, a, a lot of um, pretty severe miscommunications and hysteria and confusion. I try to answer what I can, but there's just like too many people that don't understand what's going on right now. So I, I can't keep up with the volume, which is why I'm hoping I can talk to people like you who can broadcast a single coherent message and then tens of thousands of people can hear it. Yeah. I mean, th- and that's why I love doing what I get to do is because even in the three or four minutes you were on, you know, Ali Belshi's show on MSNBC, like you get, you're like your two or three minutes, but here, you know, we're going on an hour and 10 minutes or whatever. And so, you know, there's a, a, a better chance of getting the whole picture. Okay. Um, yeah. Happy to do it. Okay. Let's sum up our entire conversation with this last question here. Um, if you had a megaphone, I hand you a megaphone and you are able to speak a few sentences to the entire world about this pandemic what would you say to them? Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, be informed, be prepared. Don't be afraid. We have medicines that are coming. We have effective policies of social distance. And we've seen that that's worked in multiple countries. Take care of your loved ones, but don't visit your elder loved ones. Be kind to medical professionals because they are going to have a challenging period ahead. The next eight to 12 weeks uh, is going to result in an acceleration of cases. Um, but we will get through this. The majority of people who are infected recover. And um, medicines are on the way. I love that. I think that would, yeah, those words would certainly give me hope. Um and so I'm, I'm hearing that. I'm hearing this conversation. I feel hopeful. I'm going to, I wasn't scared or fearful before this conversation, uh, but I, I, I will leave this in the same way, just knowing that like, okay, this, there's some shitty things happening, but like you said, medicine's on the way. Yeah. Solutions are on the way. This takes time. There's 7 billion people in the world, or almost 8 billion. Like this is a big, this is a big thing. Yep. So we need to, ha- we just need to have a lot of grace with, you know, everyone that's working on this. Um, Jake Glanville, thank you so much. We'll do this again in some time. Hopefully it won't take two more years, but thank you so much for joining us on this Sunday afternoon uh, to talk about coronavirus, COVID-19. You've helped me tremendously and I know you'll help so many people listening. Thank you so much for having me on. I look forward to talking more again soon. Friends, thank you for joining Jake and me for this podcast conversation, this important conversation during these scary and uncertain times. There are still opportunities to give a damn, to love and serve people around us during this time. 
Just be careful. Stay home if and when you can. Wash your damn hands. Be smart. For some reason, America is not responding to this pandemic as seriously as other countries. So many of us are taking the necessary precautions, but so many aren't. So please be careful. I love you all. Hit me up with any questions or comments on social media at Nick Lapara or at Let's Give a Damn. And please follow Jacob Glanville on Twitter at Curly Jungle Jake. Lots of good stuff there. And make sure to check out what he and his team are doing by checking out their website, Distributed Bio, and by watching the incredible docu-series on Netflix called Pandemic, How to Prevent an Outbreak, where he and his colleague Sarah Ives are featured many, many times. They're amazing. As always, this show was created by Chad Snavely and me, and the music is by our friend Propaganda. We are part of the Matter Media family, and we're grateful for their partnership. Please share this episode with people you like, and with people you don't like, just make sure to share it, especially this one, which contains a ton of helpful information for so many people out there. It takes fewer than 15 seconds to hit that share button, copy the link, send it to a friend right now. Also, please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you have another minute or two to spare, and I know you do because you're all home right now. Can't wait to spend more time with you friends next week, sending you lots of love and light. Please keep giving a damn. Please take care of yourselves. Love you all. Peace.